This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Robert Browning by G. K. Chesterton. Section 14. Chapter 5. Browning in Later Life. Part 1. Browning's confidences, what there were of them immediately after his wife's death, were given to several women friends. All his life, indeed, he was chiefly intimate with women. The two most intimate of these were his own sister, who remained with him in all his later years, and the sister of his wife, who seven years afterwards passed away in his presence, as Elizabeth had done. The other letters, which number only one or two, referring in any personal manner to his bereavement, are addressed to Miss Haworth and Isa Blagden. He left Florence, and remained for a time with his father and sister near Dinard. Then he returned to London, and took up his residence in Warwick Crescent. Naturally enough, the thing for which he now chiefly lived was the education of his son, and it is characteristic of Browning that he was not only a very indulgent father, but an indulgent father of a very conventional type. He had rather the chuckling pride of the city gentleman than the educational gravity of the intellectual. Browning was now famous. Bells and pomegranates, men and women, Christmas Eve, and dramatis persona had successively glorified his Italian period, but he was already brooding, half unconsciously, on more famous things. He has himself left on record a description of the incident out of which grew the whole impulse and plan of his greatest achievement. In a passage marked with all his peculiar sense of material things, all that power of writing of stone or metal or the fabric of drapery, so that we seem to be handling and smelling them, and he has described a stall for the selling of odds and ends of every variety of utility and uselessness. Picture frames, white though worn gilt, mirror scones chipped, bronze angel heads, once knobs attached to chests, handled when ancient dames chose forth brocade, modern chalk drawings, studies from the nude, samples of stone, jet, brescia, porphyry, polished and rough, sundry amazing busts, in-baked earth, broken providence be praised, a wreck of tapestry proudly purposed web, when reds and blues were indeed red and blue now offered as a mat to save bare feet, since carpets constitute a cruel cost. Omission. Vulgarized Horace for the use of schools, the life, death, miracles of Saint Somebody, Saint Somebody else, his miracles, death, and life. With this, one glance at the lettered back of which, and stall, cried I, a lira made it mine. This sketch embodies indeed the very poetry of debris, and comes nearer than any other poem has done to expressing the pathos and picturesqueness of a low-class pawn-shop. This, which Robert Browning bought for a lira out of his heap of rubbish, was, of course, the old Latin record of the criminal case of Guido Francesini, tried for the murder of his wife Pompilia in the year 1698. And this again, it is scarcely necessary to say, was the ground plan and motive of the ring and the book. 
Browning had picked up the volume and partly planned the poem during his wife's lifetime in Italy. But the more he studied it, the more the dimensions of the theme appeared to widen and deepen, and he came at last, there can be little doubt, to regard it definitely as his magnum opus, to which he would devote many years to come. Then came the great sorrow of his life, and he cast about him for something sufficiently immense and arduous and complicated to keep his brain going like some huge and automatic engine. I mean to keep writing, he said, whether I like it or not. And thus finally he took up the scheme of the Francesini story, and developed it on a scale, with a degree of elaboration, repetition and management, and inexhaustible scholarship which was never perhaps before given in the history of the world to an affair of two or three characters. Of the larger literary and spiritual significance of the work, particularly in reference to its curious and original form of narration, I shall speak subsequently. But there is one peculiarity about the story which has more direct bearing on Browning's life, and it appears singular that few, if any, of his critics have noticed it. This peculiarity is the extraordinary resemblance between the moral problem involved in the poem, if understood in its essence, and the moral problem which constituted the crisis and centre of Browning's own life. Nothing, properly speaking, ever happened to Browning after his wife's death, and his greatest work during that time was the telling, under alien symbols and the veil of a wholly different story, the inner truth about his own greatest trial and hesitation. He himself had, in this sense, the same difficulty as Caponsacchi, the supreme difficulty of having to trust himself to the reality of virtue, not only without the reward, but even without the name of virtue. He had, like Caponsacchi, preferably what was unselfish and dubious to what was selfish and honourable. He knew better than any other man that there is little danger of men who really know anything of that naked and homeless responsibility, seeking it too often or indulging it too much. The conscientiousness of the law-abider is nothing in its terrors to the conscientiousness of the conscientious law-breaker. Browning had once, for what he seriously believed to be a greater good, done what he himself would never have had the cant to deny, ought to be called deceit and evasion. Such a thing ought never to come to a man twice. If he finds that necessity twice, he may, I think, be looked at with the beginning of a suspicion. To Browning it came once, and he devoted his greatest poem to a suggestion of how such a necessity may come to any man who is worthy to live. As has already been suggested, any apparent danger that there may be in this excusing of an exceptional act is counteracted by the perils of the act, since it must always be remembered that this kind of act has the immense difference from all legal acts, that it can only be justified by success. If Browning had taken his wife to Paris, and she had died in an hotel there, we can only conceive him saying, with the bitter emphasis of one of his own lines, How should I have borne me, please? Before and after this event his life was as tranquil and casual as one would be easy to imagine. But there always remained upon him something which was felt by all who knew him in the after years. The spirit of a man who had been ready when his time came, and had walked in his own devotion and certainty, 
in a position counted indefensible, and almost along the brink of murder. This great moral of Browning, which may be called roughly the doctrine of the great hour, enters of course into many poems beside the ring and the book, and is indeed the mainspring of a great part of his poetry, taken as a whole. It is of course the central idea of that fine poem, The Statue and the Bust, which has given a great deal of distress to a great many people because of its supposed invasion of recognized morality. It deals, as everyone knows, with a Duke Ferdinand and an elopement which he planned with the bride of one of the Riccardi. The lovers begin by deferring their flight for various more or less comprehensible reasons of convenience, but the habit of shrinking from the final step grows steadily upon them, and they never take it, but die as it were waiting for each other. The objection that the act thus avoided was a criminal one is very simply and quite clearly answered by Browning himself. His case against the dilatory couple is not in the least affected by the viciousness of their aim. His case is that they exhibited no virtue. Crime was frustrated in them by cowardice, which is probably the worst immorality of the two. The same idea, again, may be found in that delightful lyric, Youth and Art, where a successful canatrice reproaches a successful sculptor with their failure to understand each other in their youth and poverty. Each life unfulfilled, you see, it hangs still, patchy and scrappy. We have not sighed deeply, laughed free, starved, feasted, despaired, been happy. And this conception of the great hour which breaks out everywhere in Browning, it is almost impossible not to connect with his own internal drama. It is really curious that this correspondence has not been insisted on. Probably critics have been misled by the fact that Browning in many places appears to boast that he is purely dramatic and that he has never put himself into his work, a thing which no poet, good or bad, who ever lived could possibly avoid doing. The enormous scope and seriousness of the ring and the book occupied Browning for some five or six years, and the great epic appeared in the winter of 1868. Just before it was published, Smith and Elder brought out a uniform edition of all Browning's works up to that time, and the two incidents taken together may be considered to mark the final and somewhat belated culmination of Browning's literary fame. The years since his wife's death that had been covered by the writing of The Ring and the Book had been years of an almost feverish activity in that and many other ways. His travels had been restless and continued, his industry immense, and for the first time he began that mode of life which afterwards became so characteristic of him, the life of what is called society. A man of a shallower and more sentimental type would have professed to find the life of dinner-tables and soirees vain and unsatisfying to a poet, and especially to a poet in mourning. But if there is one thing more than another which is stirring and honorable about Browning, it is the entire absence in him of this cant of dissatisfaction. He had the one great requirement of a poet. He was not difficult to please. The life of society was superficial, but it is only very superficial people who object to the superficial. To the man who sees the marvelousness of all things, the surface of life is fully as strange and magical as its interior. Clearness and plainness of life is fully as mysterious as its mysteries. 
the young man in evening dress pulling on his gloves is quite as elemental a figure as any anchorite quite as incomprehensible and indeed quite as alarming a great many literary persons have expressed astonishment at or even disapproval of this social frivolity of browning's not one of these literary people would have been shocked if browning's interest in humanity had led him into a gambling hell in the wild west or a low tavern in paris but it seems to be tacitly assumed that fashionable people are not human at all humanitarians of a material and dogmatic type the philanthropists and the professional reformers go to look for humanity in remote places and in huge statistics humanitarians of a more vivid type the bohemian artists go to look for humanity in thieves kitchens and the studios of the courtier latin but humanitarians of the highest type the great poets and philosophers do not go to look for humanity at all for them alone among all men the nearest drawing-room is full of humanity, and even their own families are human. Shakespeare ended his life by buying a house in his own native town and talking to the townsmen. Browning was invited to a great many conversaziones and private views, and did not pretend that they bored him. In a letter belonging to this period of his life, he describes his first dinner at one of the Oxford colleges with an unaffected delight and vanity which reminds the reader of nothing so much as the pride of the boy captain of a public school if he were invited to a similar function and received a few compliments it may be indeed that browning had a kind of second youth in this long delayed social recognition but at least he enjoyed his second youth nearly as much as his first and it is not every one who can do that a Browning's actual personality and presence in this later middle age of his memories are still sufficiently clear. He was a middle-sized, well-set-up, erect man, with somewhat emphatic gestures, and, as almost all testimonies mention, a curiously strident voice. The beard, the removal of which his wife had resented with so quaint an indignation, had grown again, but grown quite white, which, as she had said when it occurred, was a signal mark of the justice of the gods his hair was still fairly dark and his whole appearance at this time must have been very well represented by mr g f watts fine portrait in the national portrait gallery the portrait bears one of the many testimonies which exist to mr watts grasp of the essential character for it is the only one of the portraits of browning in which we get primarily the air of virility even of animal virility tempered but not disguised with a certain touch of the pallor of the brain-worker he looks here what he was a very healthy man too scholarly to live a completely healthy life End of section fourteen.